This week on Geek Explained, with all current seasons completed on both the CW and HBO Max, it's time once again for the annual DC Arrowverse Power Rankings. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is our third annual DC Arrowverse Power Rankings. We began this annual tradition back in 2020, and this year we're going to be ranking all five of the current DC Arrowverse shows. There's a lot to discuss for each show, including what this Arrowverse Power Ranking is going to look like if we do it again next year, so I am very very excited to dive into this list with you. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be checking out this week, so make sure you stay tuned for that after the jump. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, with our third annual DC Arrowverse Power Rankings. It is now time for the third annual DC TV Arrowverse Power Rankings, as presented by me. Hey, how you doing? Uh, this is the third year we are doing this, and it's been interesting because I feel like every single year the state of the DC TV Arrowverse changes. Like, there was a consistent... I want to say like a consistent status quo for a good amount of time, but once I started actually ranking them, all of a sudden, lots of things started to shake up. Like the first year that we did it was the last year that Arrow was going on. It was its final season. Uh, we've had shows debut. We've had shows go away. We've had shows probably continue past where they should have. And this year is no different. Um, if you want uh, full thoughts on last year's Power Rankings for 2021, you can go back and check out episode 186. That was last year's Power Rankings. But to summarize, basically, there were seven shows to rank. Uh, number seven, I had The Flash. Number six was Batwoman. Number five, Legends of Tomorrow. Number four was Supergirl. Number three was Black Lightning. And number two was Stargirl with number one, debuting on the list Superman and Lois both Superman and Lois and Stargirl made their debuts in the top spots of the list um, which I think is an interesting thought experiment when you take into account the other shows that had been on there for so long so that's last year's summary again if you want my full thoughts on each show at that point, episode 186, go check it out. But for this year, this year has been wild. We've had cancellations, we've had renewals, 
and we were whittled down from seven shows last year to just five. So five shows we're going to be talking about, uh, talking about what I liked, what I disliked, where they go from here, where some of them don't go from here. So let's just go ahead and dive into this list, shall we? So at number five, going up one spot, it's Batwoman. At number five, Batwoman, final season, unbeknownst to anyone who was getting ready to enjoy another season of this show. Um, this season really was the farewell to Gotham City. Um, I didn't realize it at the time while I was watching it, but it very much works as a final season for the show because the first two seasons were very much soft reboots like Batwoman in season one featured Kate Kane and she was doing her thing establishing the Batwoman identity season two brought in Ryan Wilder because Kate Kane went missing and then we had that whole subplot with Kate where is Kate oh she's here she's brainwashed all that stuff and this was the first season where it was like okay now it's no longer establishing the origin for Batwoman now we get to see that that Batwoman be the main hero in Gotham City, right? And it was good. This was a good season for this show. I feel like they figured out what they wanted to do with it. They figured out their supporting cast, and they figured out what they wanted the show to be. And what they wanted the show to be was Batwoman goes through all of Batman's rogues, essentially. They did, they did this weird thing where they were like, all of Batman's rogues had a piece of gear basically stolen from them by Batman after he turned them in. And once someone got their hands on these pieces of gear, they were essentially the new versions of these characters. We had Poison Ivy, Mr. Freeze, etc., etc. And it provided a really cool look into the Arrowverse's version of Gotham City and these characters. And it was completely, it. You know what's funny, and I realized this after uh, after finishing the season and compiling my notes for this. It's basically this season gave us the Batman Beyond treatment, right? This is a legacy character who is meeting and learning about these villains and about these rogues in Batman's history as they are going into the hands of the next generation of these characters. It's Batman Beyond, and. I kind of dug it. I really, really dug that treatment for the show because it felt like the show finally had an identity for itself. It's like Ryan Wilder's the new kid on the block, uh, Javisha Leslie doing the Lord's work as Ryan Wilder and just absolutely crushing it. But it was Ryan Wilder trying to figure out how she stacks up against the legacy of Batman and the legacy of Batman's rogues, which is super cool. And it's a great, great uh, prompt for this season. They also didn't just rest on the legacy villains. They brought in new characters and new mysteries that we hadn't seen pre in previous seasons. We got to see three Grant Morrison creations in this season. I'm sure uh, Dallas Taylor, if if he watched the show, and I very much doubt that he does, a uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, one of the co-hosts for Comics Collective Podcast, 
if he watched this, he would have been fed very well by the use of Grant Morrison's creations, that being Professor Pig, which was incredible, Flamingo, which was also really, really cool, and the Black Glove. The Black Glove was the whole driving force of this season, right? And so you got to see all of these new uh, these new forces coming into Gotham and making their names at the expense of Gotham citizens, the GCPD, and at times Batwoman herself. And you got to see that conflict juxtaposed by these classic legacy villains, or at least the uh, gear and uh, paraphernalia of these legacy villains. We also got to see the strength of having Ryan Wilder and Alice together in one season. Because last season, yes, Alice was there. She popped up. She was, you know, a... Uh, I, I don't want to say she was the main antagonist, but she was like a deuteragonist in the story because she was looking for Kate. The entire crux of season two of Batwoman is where is Kate Kane and why is Ryan Wilder Batwoman? This season, we get to see them work together. We get to see them try and establish themselves away from Kate and try to find out what they, you know, where their place in Gotham is when it's not being propped up or overshadowed by the mystery of Kate Kane. And it worked out really well. Alice gets a full and fulfilling arc throughout the entire season. Ryan gets to feel like she's the premier bat hero in Gotham City and we yes we do get um we do get uh Batwing uh Luke Fox which is really cool he got to establish himself even more and he, he was basically Batwoman's sidekick which is fine but it was very cool seeing them work together it was cool seeing Alice kind of stand on her two her own two feet away from Kate and away from the other Canes in the in the series. We also got to see two characters who I didn't expect, but two characters who made their debut debut in the season, Poison Ivy and Renee Montoya. And they went the route of instead of Renee Montoya being a love interest of Batwoman, Renee Montoya and the original Poison Ivy were love interests for each other, which is something we hadn't seen before. Something that I found really interesting, the portrayals of both those characters who made their debuts in the season were very good. And when the Poison Ivy mantle, I guess, was passed to, uh, oh god, I can't remember her name, but she she was uh, Kate's adopted sister, and she basically became the new Poison Ivy, we got to see how that worked, and the corrupting influence of Poison Ivy's mantle i guess overall i thought it was really cool i thought it was a good season a big improvement over the two seasons previous and i forgot her name mary mary is her name we got to see poison mary which was really fun and we also got to see a version of the joker in this which i didn't think i was going to like when i first saw it but bringing in the character of uh of marquise he is I want to say the half-brother or the full-brother of Ryan Wilder. Um, and he gets exposed to the Joker toxin after being, you know, very much uh, traumatized from his childhood by the Joker. We get to see him become his own version of the Joker. And we get that classic Bat-person versus Joke-esque person. And 
it felt new and it felt refreshing even though this was the most tried and true trope when it comes to bat family stories i dug it i thought it was really good a very good way to send off the season the finale is a fantastic batwoman episode the best i would say the best finale of the three seasons and actually works very much as a conclusion to the series with everyone basically going off and we got conclusions for alice we got conclusions for marquise we got everyone rounded up in a room basically saying all right let's get back to work and the adventure continues it's a show that did not get the proper respect and treatment that it should have from the get-go and i'm kind of sad that it's ending when it's on its highest uh when it's on its best foot when it's on its highest quality that it's been for the last three seasons i guess you want to go out on top but it is unfortunate that Batwoman did not get the respect and the uh, attention that it deserved. That being said, there were, of course, the same problems that we had had in previous seasons. Choppy pacing, the writing was not always there, and the villain of the week, as cool as it was to see those legacy characters you know, stacked up against Ryan, it, it did get a little repetitive that I will say. So it's not quite enough to push it past any of the other shows this year, but I think it was a really strong finale and I'm kind of sad that it doesn't get another season. Heading off to number four, also up one spot, or actually it made, uh, it went up from seven to uh, four. So up three spots this year, it's the flash. And I don't like to say it as like, But it's funny to me that with as much, with the amount of improvements that this show made, it's still only the second worst when it comes to the shows from this year. And that's no small feat either, because I ranked The Flash below Batwoman last year, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of the soft reboot Batwoman season. However... With all of the improvements that the show did make this year, I think it was warranted. Because this show is on the upswing. It had an incredibly strong start with the Armageddon crossover. Uh, The Armageddon crossover wasn't so much like, oh, this is the big DC crossover of the year. It was still at its heart a Flash story, which I really dug. I liked the fact that it was, let's tell a story that has world-ending implications, but it is still... At its core, a story about Barry and his extended Flash family. I liked the implementation of uh, Despero, which was really cool. I liked that it brought it back to Thawne. And Thawne really was the uh, the driving force of this season. This season could be subtitled The Ballad of Eadbard Thawne. Um, and I'll get into why in just a little bit, but I really enjoyed the Armageddon crossover. I thought it was a very strong start to the season, and I told anyone who would listen how good of a start it was to this season for season eight, and eight seasons in, it feels like it's still, you know, it's nearing the finish line. Like, I think if it doesn't end with season nine, then season ten's probably going to be the last season. 
However, that being said, it had a lot of intrigue throughout. You get that Armageddon story, which I thought is probably the peak of the season, and it unfortunately kind of goes downhill from there. But at the end of Armageddon, you do get that great narrative thrust of what's going on with Impulse and Excess, because we get that photo of Impulse and Excess of Nora and Bart at GCPD years before the start of The Flash. So they got to be our, not necessarily our leads for the season, but they drove a lot of what was going on in the season. I loved seeing them together. I think that having Impulse back is just, he, and I forget the actor's name, but he brings in such an energy to the show it's the energy that once upon a time i was really enjoying from roy in arrow he brings just this different energy to the show that everyone else is on and it revitalizes anybody who he shares a scene with and of course having nora there to balance him is also really really cool and the two of them bring so much to the show that it makes me wonder why they aren't series regulars uh we also got two big returns this season in the form of Deathstorm and eddie thawne eddie in a flashback during the uh excess and impulse story and also as kind of a uh like a force ghost as a temptation for Iris and for Barry, but the big push was with Deathstorm, with Robbie Amell coming back to uh, to play Deathstorm, the not Earth 2 version, but kind of the Earth 2 version. It, it's complicated, but I loved seeing Robbie Amell back. Um, having him be back as Ronnie Raymond was really cool, even if it was just as a ploy to continue on Caitlin's story. It was cool to see the faces from old school Flash in the time that we love, that we all universally loved the Flash. Uh, it was good to get that. Good to get that part of the flashback even if it was just for a limited time uh we also got as we saw uh, and as i alluded to earlier not just the return of eddie thon but the return of the one true eobard thon matt lesher is doing the lord's work anytime he pops up as eobard thon i'll talk about him again in a little bit but I just, I really loved seeing him back as Eobard Thawne, even though this was a depowered, innocent version of Eobard Thawne. Having him and Mina Dewan was really cool, and seeing the two of them work together gave us the season-long romance. Every season of Flash has a romance, and this one worked so well for me. I loved seeing them together. Made me sad that Mina as Fast Track was just a one-season deal. But we got to see Matt Lesher don the Reverse Flash costume again. I hope he comes back. You know, we've bandied about for a very long time that the show is essentially... The long-term plan should be that the show is a time loop, right? The last, the series finale should be showing Barry go back to be the lightning bolt and to be that Barry Allen that we saw in the season one finale. But... It's, you know, it, 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 I don't know how they would be able to do that with the current status quo of the show. 
but I'd still love it because we'd get to see Matt Lesher back. I like him much more as Eobard Thawne than I do um, the Eobard Thawne that we get every single year. I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but he always plays um, a version of Harrison Wells, except for this season where he is just uniquely Eobard Thawne. And it makes me... It makes me sad because I really enjoy Lesher's version of Eobard Thawne. I think he gets the character to a degree that sometimes even the writers of this show don't. And to see him essentially be ripped apart, f- both figuratively and literally, by... I'm, I'm just going to look up and vamp his name. Um, by the other version of Eobard Thawne that they have... Um, that they've settled on. Uh, Tom Cavanaugh. Tom Cavanaugh, wonderful actor. He's been a mainstay for The Flash. But having Eobard Thawne, I guess, be purged from the timeline makes me feel like if they do bring him back, it is going to be the Tom Cavanaugh version. Or maybe that just means the Matt Lesher version is going to be the main Thawne if they bring him back. Who knows? The way that I look at it, this being kind of the swan song for Eobard Thawne as a character, I'm glad that they bought that they brought both versions back. I kind of wish they had stuck with the lesser version. That being said, Tom Cavanaugh doing absolutely the most that he could with this character. Um, I don't love the redesign. I much prefer the old school leather version of the. Uh, reverse flash costume i get it they wanted it to be literally an inversion of the flash's current costume which is perfection don't change it a bit but that being said i think that having the two look different makes sense to me and overall the show was good the show was a huge improvement over last season like it's not even close I do think, again, we are nearing the end point for this show. Um, The writers and the showrunner have expressed interest in having the show, because they didn't know if they were going to get a season 9, so keep that same energy. Keep that same energy as we go into season 9 and potentially season 10. Because they want to do Blackest Night, which I think would be interesting, but wouldn't make any sense if we don't have any Green Lantern involvement, which uh, I guess we should just talk about it. Um, They resolved the John Diggle, will he be Green Lantern stuff in this show as well, and he's not. He's not. He gave it up. That's... uh, I, I, I feel like they went so far to they went right up to the line and then they were like, no, we're not doing it. So it feels like all of the teases for him doing this up to this point were bait. And I hate to use that word because I feel like it's overused so often nowadays, but that's what it feels like. It feels like they baited us into caring about this. And then just for them to be like, nope, he just goes off. So I didn't like that. There is, you know, the possibility that they might be able to walk that back with something we're going to talk about in a little bit on the list, but I don't know. I didn't like that, and I don't think that if they are planning on incorporating Blackest Night, that it would make sense to do that without any Green Lantern involvement. But, again, huge improvements on the show. I do think that it is 
wildly improved from last season, and I'm hoping that we continue this upswing and that season nine is the strongest season we've seen. So that's why it's at number four. Again, go jumping up three whole spots to that number four spot. Now it's time for number three. Number three, unfortunately, dropped one spot, and it is Stargirl. But it is not because the show is bad now. In fact, it's only because we're still waiting on season three. Season three drops in October, which I understand people will probably be asking, hey, shouldn't you have waited to do this in October? Yeah, probably. I probably should have. But I'm doing this now because most of these shows are wrapped and we might be getting more Arrowverse this fall. They haven't really released these schedules yet. It's more likely in the spring, but I wanted to do it now. We are still waiting on season three. So if you wanted to get a more in-depth look at my thoughts of season two, again, go back to episode 186. I give it a whole big thing um, talking about both season one and season two. It officially joined the Arrowverse in season two, which is why it was on the list and not on the list previously. But again, I love the show. I think it's fantastic. It hits exactly the demographic, which I will admit is not my demographic. But it is so comic booky that it's it hurts at times. <laughs> um, it is very much made for the high school crowd, which is okay. And that's, you know, at its heart what that character of Courtney Whitmore should be. But it introduced more of the JSA. It crossed over a little bit with the Flash by bringing us an Earth 2 version of Jay Garrick as opposed to the Jay Garrick we have on Earth Prime. And I overall, I really loved it. And I'm very excited for Season 3. Now, I think most of this entry is going to go into what to expect for Season 3 because all of it sounds really fun. Uh, the subtitle is Frenemies. Last subtitle was Summer School. And there's a lot that could be gleaned from that. We got the introduction of Jade last season. What are we going to be getting from that? Are we going to be getting another Flash analog? Will it finally be, you know, Wally West? Or maybe, hell, we might be getting, uh, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, it would be really cool to get Jesse Chambers. Or Jess Chambers, sorry, um, from the uh, current DC multiverse um, or the multiversity. Um, oh, why am I? It, it's not Kid Justice, but you know what I'm talking about. Jess Chambers that made their debut in um, in Future State, now coming over and having their own book alongside the other kids in uh teen justice teen justice uh in the teen justice book it would be really cool and i think that would be a great way to introduce that character um but the main crux it looks like of the season is going to be star girl v Starman because now that we have Starman back and there's only one star rod to use they're going to be fighting for real estate when it comes to that, uh, when it comes to the staff. So I am very interested to see what they do with that. I love me some, uh, some Joel. So I am very excited to see him take more of a uh, presence in the show. 
And we're also getting to see the JSA growing and changing and introducing more characters. So I'm hoping that we get a little bit more Jay Garrick. I'm, again, hoping we get a speedster this time around. Uh, Jesse Quick would be cool, though we did see a version of Jesse Quick in the Arrowverse already. So I think it's it's primed for a Jess Chambers. I think that would be a really cool idea. Uh, we also, as spoiled by the main actress... Uh, know that this show is going to be a murder mystery. Something's going to happen. Someone is going to die. And we get a small town murder mystery, which you know is right up my alley. You know that's what I love. So in season three, we're getting uh, the importance of legacy. We're getting JSA, and we're getting a small town murder mystery. So season three is shaping up to be possibly my favorite season of the bunch. So we'll see how this goes. I'm very excited for this show to continue, and I cannot wait to see just what is going to happen when we get into season three in October. But that brings us to number two, making the, I think, the largest jump. Let me see here. Uh, one, two, three. I, I, I guess it's the same amount as The Flash. But jumping up three spots from last year at number five to this year at number two, it's Legends of Tomorrow. This one hurt. Let me tell you. Uh, to have to say so long and goodnight to Legends of Tomorrow actually really, really sucks. I talked about last... Uh, last year, how much I enjoyed Legends of Tomorrow just leaning into just being the most bonkers show when it comes to superheroes on TV. And I loved how much they leaned into it this time around as well. Uh, this this show crossed 100 episodes, um, which is wild considering how down people were on it for a long while myself included but i was blown away by how fun this this season got um we got three new characters uh alive action gideon she's not just you know a hologram or a flashback we got to see gideon take the stage uh spooner a brand new character who had to grapple with her asexuality, which was really cool. Uh, and then we got to see Gwyn Davies, the inventor of time travel, with uh, Matt Ryan. Yes, that's his name. Matt Ryan leaving Constantine behind and embracing this new role as Gwyn Davies. It was really cool. It brought an energy to the cast that was sorely needed. And it was so good it was just it was comfort food right this show over the last two seasons has become comfort food and it's a show that you can always just turn on to be fun to have a good time to have tons of heart and I am really bummed that we're not getting another season out of this. Um, episode 100 was everything that you wanted an episode 100 to be. It was comedic, it was fun, it was heartfelt, and it gave us a look back on uh, plot lines, on characters that we have been sorely missing. We got to see Rip Hunter again, for God's sake. Like, it was a wonderful, wonderful episode. One of my favorite, you know, landmark episodes in the Arrowverse. 
and seeing the legacy of the Wave Rider, of the legends, of all the characters that can and have been on this ship and on this crazy ride, it hit me just how much this show meant to the Arrowverse and how much how much dimmer the light of the Arrowverse is going to be without it. Um, and I think it owes a lot to having an unintentional finale, right? The show, uh, the show, the season's penultimate episode, Too Legit to Quit, can be seen as a legit series finale because it deals with what would happen if everyone retired. I loved this episode to death. It was probably... Uh, I, I would say it was just under episode 100 is my favorite episode of the season. Um, but this episode dealing with what happens after Legends of Tomorrow for everybody was, oh man, it pulled at the heartstrings more than I was expecting it to, which is really nice. Uh, we got to see just how much the Wave Rider and being a legend meant to everybody. And we got to see... Just how much Gwyn Davies loved his partner. And so having that be the crux of like, oh shit, he is going to give this all up to try and save, try and save his husband, partner? I'm just going to say partner, just in case. Um, and it brought us to the season and as we came to find out, the series finale, which gave us the most pitch-perfect casting in this show, possibly in all of the Arrowverse, because the final episode takes us back to World War One, where Gwen Davies is trying to stop a fixed point, a fixed point in time travel is a very important plot point whenever you talk about science fiction. And this is no different. Fixed points have fixers, where there is one person from the Time Commission assigned to make sure that certain events happen how they happen. And it's not always treated this way, but in the show it is. And they set up like this, you know, people have gone back so many times to try and change this event. And he's always been there. This fixer who can stop time and can wipe out anyone who tries to change this. We find out that this fixer is named Mike. And he's not just Mike. We find out that this fixer is Booster Gold, played by Donald Faison of Scrubs, of pretty much any cool, funny thing you've watched, he's been a part of. Um, my boy Turk was Booster Gold. They gave us pitch-perfect casting, and we don't get to have a season of Booster Gold now. It is maddening to me that we will never get to see a full season of Booster Gold played by Donald Faison. Like, where is the justice in that? It boils my blood that we are not going to get a season of this because it felt like they had pushed themselves to, you know, they have put all the puzzle pieces in place to give us possibly the best season of the show. And instead... The show ends with everyone getting arrested. What is... Oh my god, it 
bothers me to on a fundamental, on a molecular level, that we are not going to get to see the payoff for this. And I know they're probably going to do it in like a two-episode crossover the, of The Flash and resolve this. I don't, I don't want that. I want a full season. I want a final season treated like a final season. So I'm still bummed about this. But again, we got such a strong season for Legends of Tomorrow, um, bringing in all of the elements that we've loved over the past two seasons and making a show that sang. And it's it's forever going to be a missed opportunity that we didn't get to have a full season of the Legends trying to clean up Booster Gold's mess. It's always going to bother me. I can't help it. It's going to be something that is going to be on my mind for a very long time. And if we continue on with these power rankings, it is going to continue to burrow in my mind. So that is at number two, which means, of course... Holding strong for the second year in a row at number one, it's Superman and Lois. Season two of Superman and Lois was bigger, bolder, it flew higher, further, and faster. This show is the best DC show currently going. Period. You can argue with me about Peacemaker, you can argue with a wall. Superman and Lois is the best that DC is putting out right now. It is, for me, exactly the content that I need from Superman in live action. And for me, Tyler Hecklin now is my live action Superman. There are obviously lots of redeeming qualities about Henry Cavill's Superman, and I will forever have a soft spot in my heart for Brandon Routh's Superman. But, that being said, Tyler Hecklin is Superman. I don't know who can argue that point now. Um, This season, man, this season had it all. This season went weirder, which was really fun. We got to visit uh, the Inverse Earth, and Bizarro made his appearance... I love, absolutely love to death that we have gotten to the point where, yes, we've seen it done to death. The bizarro version of really any character with the super mantle. We saw it in Supergirl. We saw it in Smallville. But I love that we actually had like a bizarro Earth which was really, really fun. Uh, we got to see, you know, the the dark, angsty, you know, mid-2000s version of what this show would have been, which is really cool. Uh, we also got to put some really great... Uh, we got to give some a large amount of time to John Henry Irons and Allie Alston, two characters who I... I mean... Listen... Steel has and always will be one of my favorite Superman supporting characters. But if you told me that the daughter of the Parasite was going to be the main villain of this season, I would have laughed in your face. Um, And I know I'm going to say this wrong, so I apologize in advance. Uh, Rhea Kilstedt as Allie Alston. Phenomenal. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. 
Um, she does fall into the tropes of a CW villain, which is hard to get away from. But I think having this be its own thing really helped with that. Uh, Woolparks, Woolay, Wool, I'm sorry, um, has been crushing it since the first season. Uh, the reveal of John Henry Irons will always stick in my mind as something that will get me up and out of my seat. But he really got to shine in this season, actually bringing in uh, Natasha or Nat. We're just going to call her Nat because I think I can't remember off the top of my head now if they changed her name or not. But bringing in his daughter, showing him as a parallel to Clark, both of them being fathers, both of them having to raise their children and deal with all the weirdness that comes with that. I thought it was great. And he held up a large portion of the show for me, just as much as the Kent family did as well. Um, But getting Bizarro, getting John Kent as Superboy, as our 90s Connell being John L in the inverse earth was really, really fun. Um, getting to once again, continue to see the growth of Jordan as a character and John, the mainline John as well. And I mean, I said it last year, I'm going to continue to say it. Bitsy Tullock continues to steal the show as Lois Lane. She is doing the absolute most in every single scene that she features in. And I, as critical as I was of her when she was first cast, uh, the first few appearances, I didn't love her in the role. She is 100% up there with the most iconic Lois Lanes in any adaptation, period, bar none. So I have been absolutely loving seeing her alongside Tyler Hecklin as Superman. The two of them work so well together. They continue the rebirth vibes that I absolutely love and adore. And having this be kind of the, okay, let's get a little bit weirder. Let's get a little bit bolder with this. Made this show must watch. This was, you know, as as much as I loved that first season of Superman and Lois, there was a bit of a dip in the middle. This season, while of course there is that episodic dip, it wasn't as pronounced it felt like, at least personally to me, um, with the amount of plates that were spinning, with the focus on, okay, Smallville is legit under threat, not just Smallville, you know, the greater world. It was a fantastic follow-up to last season, and I guess we should just talk about it. We got the big reveal that this Earth is not our prime Earth. There is a reason that this show feels so disjointed from even Supergirl with all of the recasts that they have done. There is a reason why all why this show feels so thematically different from the other CW shows, and it's because it's not taking place on Earth Prime. Just like Stargirl, it is taking place on a completely different Earth. This is Earth TUD-25. I don't really understand what the TUD stands for. I'm sure someone does, and if you know what it is, hit me up. Let me know what it is, because I cannot be bothered to try and track down the reason why it's given this designation. But we find out 
that this is Earth TUD25. We are nowhere near Earth Prime, and that's why things are so different. Does this mean that there is a little bit of a weirdness going on with what's going on with the cow that was part of crisis on infinite earths is he still part of that justice league will we see uh tyler hecklin pop up with that not as good costume again who knows we don't really know for sure um but it makes sense why they changed up so much about the characters so much about you know the presentation of the show and it kind of weirds me out when we now see John Diggle show up because now this is another alternate version of John Diggle. Maybe this version of John Diggle could be Green Lantern. Who knows? We don't know. Obviously, they don't have a plan for it. So I am getting back off of that because I I could rant about that for another 30 minutes. Um, this show is spectacular. It is everything that I wanted a, a modern Superman show to be. It's presented as well as I would want a Superman show to present. Um, the characters continue to be the highlight. The narrative is your classic CW-style narrative, but it's presented with such polish and such care that you would be forgiven if you thought this was an HBO Max original. Uh, the characters continue to sing for me. I love how Superman and Lois's relationship continues to blossom and grow. Jordan and John were not as, you know kid cw bad as they were in the first season which again is a huge improvement john henry irons continues to be a standout and giving him the uh, subplot of raising his raising his daughter is also awesome the ali alston of it all was really great as well and i loved seeing her shine as the villain getting bizarro was fantastic getting us a, a Superboy was really cool and then we got the teaser that season three is going to be dealing with bruno Mannheim, which means inner gang which means we might be getting some apocalypse play i would love to get this version of dark side of this version of Granny Goodness, of this version of the Furies. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we just upped the budget just a touch more with this presentation, Superman versus the Furies? And I, the, the possibilities are legit endless here. I would love to see more fourth world stuff brought in. I would love to see more inner gang, more mob stuff, because you know how much I love Superman fighting the mob. Um, this show is still firing on all cylinders for me. I'm absolutely loving it. And I truly do think it is the best offering of the CW Arrowverse, which is why once again, for the second year in a row, it sits at the top of the CW Arrowverse power rankings. So, um, uh, that does it for this year's power rankings. Uh, to recap this real quick, and number five, for its final time on the list, Batwoman. For number four, for its, you know, we don't know where it's going next, The Flash. At number three, Stargirl. At number two, ending as strong as it could, Legends of Tomorrow, and holding strong at number one, Superman and Lois. Which brings me to what this power ranking is going to look like next year is there going to be a power ranking next year i can tell you presently as i am recording this as you are listening to this i don't know right we have a weird 
status quo for the Arrowverse right now. So kind of talking about like the state of the DC TV Arrowverse is a little weird. Um, Currently, as the standings go, we have Stargirl, we have The Flash, and we have Superman and Lois. What was once a thriving universe has now been whittled down to three shows. And yes, we're getting fucking Gotham Knights later, but who knows what's going on with that. I don't want that crossing over with literally anything because it looks terrible. I don't know exactly what the plan is for DC TV going forward. People are loving Stargirl. People are loving Superman and Lois. People are, you know, about the same as they were last year on The Flash. So we do know that The Flash is going to be coming to an end soon, whether that's with Season 9 or ideally getting just a full circle end with Season 10 so that it... I believe, ties with Smallville as the longest-running superhero show. I don't know what the Arrowverse is going to look like come this time next year. Uh, We do know that there is a Season 3 coming for Superman and Lois, which is phenomenal. Uh, Season 3 for Stargirl is going to be, like I said earlier, in October. Can't wait for that. The Flash, we do know, is guaranteed getting a Season 9. We don't know anything past that. So we'll have to basically take stock of it next year and see what's happening. Um, Do I want this to continue? Yes, of course. I've loved the DC Arrowverse for as long as it's been around, but it does feel like we're starting to move away from the idea of that. And now it's just going to be completely disjointed, nothing's connected, maybe the occasional crossover. It would be dope as hell to see Stargirl crossover with Superman and Lois. I'm just going to say it. It would be great. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, we know that there is a large contingency of both production and cast that wants Stargirl to cross over with The Flash, which I think would be awesome. But as this starts to move away from the interconnected universe of or multiverse of DC TV, I think we are going to go back to the previous status quo, pre-Arrowverse, of these shows that maybe they could fit together, maybe they don't. And as we start to see stuff like Gotham Knights, which is going to be in its own place, uh, Titans, which is still around it's still around it's getting another season can't wait for it um we'll just have to take stock and see what's going on with the show going forward uh hbo max has peacemaker which is again phenomenal i don't want to have people think what i said earlier means that i think peacemaker is bad it's incredible television but it feels like we are going towards everything being separate again, which could be good, which could be good because you won't have to be stuck in the confines of playing by the rules set by other shows, um, which has been a benefit and I think could be something that benefits the approach to other superhero properties. But I don't know. I think that there are lots of ways that we can take this. There are lots of avenues that can be taken going forward. But to be completely honest with you, as long as we continue to see Superman and Lois and Stargirl, I think I'll be okay. I have long since gotten to the 
I've long since gotten past the point of needing to have the Flash on TV. Um, even with the complicated Ezra Miller bullshit that's going on, um, Grant Gustin will always be the Flash for me. And I think that his legacy and the legacy of the show is secure. I think people are going to look back on it with a much more um, favorable eye the farther we get away from it after the show is completed. But I am basically all aboard the uh, Superman, Lois, and Stargirl train right now. So hopefully we continue to see an upswing for the Flash I don't know where it's going to go. Hopefully season nine's good. Uh, we'll just have to see. I'm excited for Stargirl season three. I'm over the moon excited for Superman and Lois season three. There's a lot to be excited about for the DC TV offerings and not just the HBO Max offerings. We gotta always pay tribute to the, you know, the network that started it all, which was the CW, unfortunately. Um, say what you will about the... CW-ness of all of its properties, but there is a reason why the Arrowverse has the place in people's hearts that it does. So, will there be a fourth annual DC TV Arrowverse Power Rankings? We'll just have to see. Um, we will... I'll keep my fingers crossed, because I'd love to continue this on, but... Depending on what way the wind blows when it comes to the network, we'll just have to see what the future holds. But all I know is that DCTV continues to be strong, and hopefully it will soar up, up, and away from the problems it's currently facing, and we will get fantastic DCTV for years to come. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we gotta take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of Last Week. And for me, it was real tough because some real good books came out last week. But ultimately, there was only one book that made me audibly shout in my home, and that was Batman Killing Time number five, written by Tom King, art by uh, Dave Marquez. If you read issue five, you know exactly why I shouted, um... This issue, the final page reveal of this issue, just made the entire, the entire book make sense for me. Um, it's wonderful. This book is incredible. Uh, Tom King rules. He's awesome. So, uh, but that does it for last week's books. This week, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books for you to check out. Some big ones this week, in fact. So let's go ahead and dive in. Starting off with AXE Eve of Judgment number one. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Pascal Ferry. And this is your prologue. This is your primer for the Judgment Day uh big old crossover between Avengers, X-Men, and Eternals for this year. Next week, I believe, is number one for Judgment Day, so this is going to be your lead-in, your prologue, as I said. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. First shot fired. Judgment is coming. 
The Eternals know that the mutants have conquered death, but what are they going to do about it? The oldest immortals on Earth eye up the newest, and the Doomsday Clock starts to tick toward Judgment Day. Yep, I love this. Uh, at the end of issue 12 of the current X-Men run by Jerry Duggan, uh, they revealed to the world that mutants have conquered death. So I was wondering how they were going to get that word out for this whole event to kick off. But now we know. So for everyone saying that the, that the Duggan X-Men run wasn't important, up yours, okay? <laughs> um... I loved that book, just so you know. But I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to check this out. I am still I still haven't read the Eternals book by Karen Gillan. I know that's a sin, but I will probably get caught up on it before Judgment Day next week. We'll just have to see. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Who knows? But I'm very excited to see the opening shot for this crossover. Next up, we have Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 13. This is written by Tom Taylor and Nicole Maines, with art by Clayton Henry. And this is the debut of Dreamer. Very excited about this. I've been waiting for this book to pop up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Dreams and Nightmares. It's the dramatic DC debut of Dreamer. When every hero on Earth is threatened by Henry Bendix's machinations, it's a race against time for Dreamer to warn Superman before it happens. But will this mysterious new ally's premonition become a nightmare for Jonathan Kent? So there's been a lot of talk, as I've been saying, probably for at least a month now, on the hate for Tom Taylor's Superman Son of Kal-El. And you know what? If that is your prerogative, that's your prerogative. But... I truly do think that this book is still very, very good. You can have, there are, you know, it's not a perfect book, and I don't think it's being presented as such, but it's a book that is giving the platform for characters like Dreamer to make her debut in the DC Comics universe, and... I, how can you argue with that? How can you argue with that? I'm very excited about this. I'm excited about Nicole Maines to actually have a hand in writing the comics debut for her character. I think that's super cool and should be done more often. So I'm very excited to pick this up. This is going to be a wonderful little issue. Next up, we have Immortal X-Men number four, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Michelle Bandini. And I am very excited about this book. I've been loving the Immortal X-Men run so far. It's only been three issues in, so that's perfect time to get caught up, especially because this is tying into another book that we are going to be uh, talking about in just a minute. But I have been loving this book. I did not expect to love this book as much as I did. Uh, but this book rules. It really, really does. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. A Gala Performance. Emma Frost will do anything to protect the children, including the metaphorical child that is the Hellfire Gala. Last year's was a fantastic success. She would not like it if someone ruined the second. She would not like it at all. But don't worry, I'm sure it'll go fine. Which means, dear listener, that it probably will not go fine. So I am very curious to see what happens here. Uh, Emma Frost has been a main player in the Krakoa era since it began. And I love just how much of an ensemble cast this book has been. 
Uh, we've got last issue was a focus on Mystique and Destiny. The issues previous were kind of establishing the status quo. And this issue is going to focus on Emma Frost. So I really dig it. Been loving this book. Really, really enjoy it. Another book that I'm really enjoying that I'm sad to see come to an end is Rogues. Uh, Rogues, written by Joshua Williamson with art by Leo Max. I believe this is the final part uh, of this three-issue gigantic-sized series. I've been loving it. You know how much I love The Flash's Rogues, even though, spoiler alert, they killed off Captain Boomerang. Uh, But I've been loving this heist story. I think the the characters are wonderful. The setting of Gorilla City as the place where the heist is taking place is awesome. And I just, I love these characters. So I'm very excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Book 3, Assault on Gorilla City. Book 3, The Heist. Captain Cold had a plan to steal from Gorilla Grodd, a plan that was going to make the rogues rich and change their lives for the better. But now, that plan has exploded, and rogues' blood is splattered all over Gorilla City. If the remaining members are going to survive, they need to think fast and work together. But a betrayal by one of the rogues brings the heat to a whole new level, continuing this groundbreaking neo-noir take on some of the DCU's greatest villains. So the way that they worded that makes me think this isn't the end of it, but I don't know. I thought it was just three issues, but I would be totally okay if there's more. We'll see. We'll see when we pick up the issue. But yeah, super excited to pick this up. Next up, a big book for the week. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lolli, Russell Dodderman, Chris Anka, and Carlos Villa. This is X-Men Hellfire Gala number one. Last year, it was a, I believe, like a 12-part event. This year, they have compressed it into one giant-sized one-shot. Very excited. Let's dive into the synopsis. New Team Revealed. At last year's gala, mutants changed the face of the solar system, terraforming Mars and claiming it for mutant kind. Do you think you can afford to miss this year's gala, all contained in this one oversized issue? So, it makes me a little sad that this doesn't feel as big as last year's Hellfire Gala, which I get. I understand, narratively, it's probably not going to give us as big a change as, hey, the mutants own Mars! But I'm still very excited to see this. Not for nothing, we're getting a brand new X-Men team. That was something that was revealed in issue 12 as well, that the current team is kaput. It is done, and we are getting a brand new team for the next probably 12 issues. Uh, We do know that sitting on the team is going to be Cyclops, Jean Grey, and probably Sync. But from there, who knows? Who knows what the team's going to look like? If you want to get an idea of who the team could be, go back to our X-Men coverage, the episode we did where we crossed over with the Comics Collective, where we rebuilt the X-Men for 2022. Go check that out. Wonderful time we had in that episode with some very fun teams. But I'm very excited to see who is on this brand new uh, X-Men team. I think it's going to be very interesting. So make sure you pick this up. This is going to be an issue not to miss. Next up, another issue you should absolutely not miss. It's Dark Crisis Worlds Without a Justice League Superman number one. What a title. This is written by Tom King and uh, Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas with art by Chris Burnham and Fico Osio. And I'm pretty excited about this. This is 
essentially a spinoff of Dark Crisis showing the possible worlds that could have popped up. And it's Tom King writing Superman again. I love when Tom King writes Superman. If you want to go back and check out the episode where I covered uh, Superman Up in the Sky, it is one of my favorite Superman stories. It's an episode that I loved making, and it's an episode I've gotten a lot of good feedback on. So go check that out. Uh, Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Out there. When Pariah and his forces of the Great Darkness laid waste to the most powerful superheroes of all time, all hope was lost. With the Man of Steel suffering the same fate as that of his comrades, join us for a look at a world of dreams he would never have thought possible while alive. Where there's life, there's hope. And with that hope comes a deeper unraveling of the tapestry of DC Universe's biggest event of 2022. Plus, an Aquaman backup. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, We see on the cover, essentially, Superman with his own red and blue Robin. I love the idea of that. I'm very excited to see what happens in this book. This is a must pick up for me. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely pick up, is Daredevil number one. Written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Marco Cicchetto and Rafael De La Torre. Uh, this is the relaunch for Daredevil slash Daredevils, plural, because this is continuing the saga of Matt Murdock and Electra Nachios sharing the Daredevil mantle as they bring the fight to the hand by possibly forming the fist. We don't really know what's going to happen there. I'm very excited. Let's dive into the synopsis. The Red Fist Sage Part 1. The Island. After the rain comes the dawn. In the wake of Wilson Fisk's violent and visceral last act, it's a new era for New York and the man without fear. With a groundbreaking creative team returning to usher in an all-new chapter, Matt Murdock has no choice but to leave behind everything he's ever known, and Elektra is the last vestige of his former life. Everything Matt Murdock thought it meant to be Daredevil is about to change, including the challenges he will have to face in the cowl. That is concerning. I don't like the idea that he has to leave Elektra behind, because Elektra is Daredevil! So we'll just have to see what's going on with that. But right now, Chip Zdarsky's on top of the world, writing Batman, writing Daredevil. Uh, Batman 125, very close to being the pick of the week for last week. Uh, it's It was a very strong week for Batman. I love Zdarsky and Chichetto's Daredevil. I think it's consistently one of the best Marvel books that we've gotten for the past two years, and I cannot wait to see what this new chapter is going to hold for the man and woman without fear. It's going to be very, very good. We might get some globe trotting. This should be fun. But that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got uh, AXE Eve of Judgment number one, Superman Son of Kal-El number 13, Immortal X-Men number four, Rogues number three, X-Men Hellfire Gala number one, Dark Crisis Worlds Without a Justice League, Superman number one, and Daredevil number one. Lots of number ones, lots of very exciting books for this week. Uh, July is shaping up to be an all-timer and might just be the most packed month for comics this year. So make sure you don't miss out on any of the comics this week. (laughs) 
And that is going to bring us to the wrap up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises our stock up and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you write us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally whatever you want. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky is the limit. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. We did get a couple more ratings in, a couple more five stars, which. Thank you so much for those of you who took the time to give us those five stars. It really does uh, really does help me out. It really makes me just feel good. It really does. Um, I've been doing this podcast for a really long time, but it still warms my heart whenever I see someone liking it. You know, <laughs> it's the whole reason that I still do this. So, uh, but alongside those ratings, write a review helps me out gives me the opportunity to give you a shout out and I love being able to say nice things about people it's a good thing and I love doing it so give me a reason to do it write your reviews uh, also if you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag if you have a question for me a message for the podcast etc etc you can write to us just send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here on the podcast if you want to follow us on the social medias, if you want to keep up with the podcast, uh, participate in polls that decide future episodes, get first notifications for new episodes and what we'll be talking about each week, uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at Pod. I'm a little bit, and by that I mean probably a lot of bit more active on Twitter than Instagram, but you will be getting stuff basically talking about the episodes, uh, stuff that I'm getting ready to promote, and also uh, some sick-ass teasers <laughs> made by uh, good friends of the podcast. And the reason for those sick-ass teasers for right now is because every single Friday we are doing the Geek Explained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Jason Aaron's Thor. Last week, we just covered uh, Unworthy Thor, the five-issue miniseries by Jason Aaron and Olivia Quapel. This week, we are diving back into the saga of Mighty Thor Jane Foster with the Asgard Shi'ar War, which is a trip of a story. Uh, I, alongside my co-hosts Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are going to be covering that this Friday, this horrific Friday. So make sure you tune in, be there or be square, not a circle. But that does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be diving into something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. For those of you who maybe know, you probably should, uh, 10 years ago, the Avengers hit theater screens around the world and changed how filmmaking was done for better and for worse forever. 
And next week, we're going to be taking a look back at this film. What worked, what didn't, the production behind it. And I'm going to be joined by my Geek Explained Film Club brothers, uh, Chris Carter and AJ Kincaid, as we discuss and put a big old retrospective on 2012's The Avenger. So stay tuned for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time. 